Hi, I'm Mick Cronin and this is Watch Your Cause, a podcast in which I interview a variety of guests about a cause that is close to them, something they feel passionate about. I want to start conversations that educate, inspire and shine a light on causes around the globe that can or are having a significant social impact. But here's the kicker. Each guest will nominate the next and become a chain that will lead from my very first guest to my last and ultimate guest of season one, Barack Obama. Got your attention? Thought I might. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of What's Your Cause? In my last episode, I interviewed Taylor D. Hawkins and Taylor um, went away and came back with a nomination of Susan Harris Rimmer. Susan is the director of Griffith University's Policy Innovation Hub. Her vision is for a gender equal society that respects human rights and has made a full and just transition to a zero carbon world. So let me tell you, if I was to go through all the accolades and awards that Susan has, we probably could do an episode on it. It's uh, extremely, extremely uh, impressive. But let me just go through some to give you an idea of the amazing work that she does and, uh, and how it's been recognised. So on top of being the director of the Griffith University Policy Innovation Hub, uh, Sue also leads the climate justice team for the Grif- Griffith Climate Action Beacon. She's also the founder of Every Gen Coalition. In 2021, Susan was the winner of the Fulbright Scholarship in Australia-United States Alliance Studies. She was named a top innovator by Uplink World Economic Forum for the Climate Justice Challenge in 2022 for the creation of the Climate Justice Observatory. And that is focusing on extreme heat and human rights in Queensland. So let's keep going. Susan provided the independent human rights assessment for the FIFA World Cup held here in Australia, New Zealand. And we all know what an amazing event um, that turned out to be. Um, And she was also the human rights advisor for the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. Susan is the editor of Future for International Criminal Justice and also the author of Gender and Transitional Justice, The Women of Timor. She was part of the Think 20 process for Australia's host year of the Group of 20 Leaders Summit in Brisbane in 2014, the Turkish Presidency in 2015 and the Chinese Presidency in 2016. She was named one of Westpac and Australia's Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence in the Global category. She was named one of 100 Global Gender Experts by Apolitics 2018 and one of 20 Queensland Voices female leaders in 2009. She has also worked for the UN High Commission for Refugees, the National Council for Churches and the Parliamentary Library. So there you have it. I actually could have listed more. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to sit down with Susan. She was so kind and generous with her time and, and she really just shares her story about where she comes from, how it shaped her, um, her career and how she built it up and all the different social justice items that she has worked tirelessly on bringing to the forefront and seeing some change being made. That's where I'm going to leave it. Let's just jump into episode 11 of Watch Your Cause with Susan Harris Rimmer. So Susan, welcome to Watch Your Cause. It's great to have you as my next guest. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks, Mick. We just jumped straight into it. So, uh, Susan Harris-Rimmer, what's your cause? My whole whole life has been a series of causes, some of which have been tilting at windmills and um, others have been a bit more successful. But essentially, um, so I'm a country girl from Coonabarabra, New South Wales, and I don't exactly know why, but I became obsessed with social justice at a very young age, probably because, you know, Coonabarabran gets a very raw deal in very many respects. Uh, so I was, already, I was 
completely set on this idea of becoming this human rights lawyer and having no idea what that meant or or how on earth I would possibly ever in my life get to that point. But um, I was really lucky. I went to, uh, got sent away because Kinabarabin doesn't have uh, the school that goes all the way through in the Catholic system. So they sent me away to Lismore um, and I was so lucky because I had this principal, uh, who was a nun, of course, uh, who had a PhD in physics. I mean, what are the odds? <laughs> and she... <laughs> And she was like, right, the smart girls are going to go to uni and I'm going to make it happen with my extremely forceful personality. Um, she's passed away now, Sister Mary Canane, but she was, she changed my life uh, completely. I was living in a caravan on my own on welfare and I don't know what would have happened to me if I hadn't gone to uni, honestly. So she, but she did everything. She enrolled me, all of it because I had no idea how to do any of that. She went to drove all the way down to Coonabarabran to have it out with my mum and my family priest about letting me go to university. Um, they, they had lots of valid concerns, some of which were, you know, that they just brought in hex. And, you know, for country kids, that amount of debt was just terrifying. Um, so anyway, I went to uni through a series of, magically lucky events and the intervention of a, of a PhD nun and I so right from the beginning I was very interested in Amnesty International so when I was at high school I was interested in like writing letters I must have been an incredibly painful teen in fact I know I was an incredibly painful <laughs> I was pointed out to me on regular occasions that I was an incredibly painful teen but I was obsessed with like social justice in around Lismore so you know I went to all the to all the things I could possibly go to that had that kind of ring to them. Uh, and then when I got to uni, there was lots more opportunities to kind of think about um, human rights uh, as, a, as, a, as a calling, as a vocation. Um, that was not something the law school encouraged, that's for sure. Uh, it's a very conservative law school. I was the only kid on our study there, so I won all the prizes for, you know, the not well-off I was yeah. the only one, so I won everything, and they would. It was just so embarrassing and mortifying every single time. But um, but I really needed the money in the book, so I took it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I got this underlying cause around, you know, that just because you grow up to poor in the middle of nowhere doesn't mean you're not smart, and doesn't mean you don't deserve opportunities. So clearly. For me, education was the anti-poverty vaccine. It is for a lot of people. So I have, have an underlying cause that there is talent in every corner of this country that is that is being wasted because of lack of opportunity and, and lack of access. So that is a, that's a personal story, something I, I carry and I try to tell. So for ages I was so embarrassed about coming from Coonabarabran and you know, not having any social graces and quite an accent. I've <laughs> got rid of a lot of it, but... When I'm tired, it still comes out. You know, it was all very like this, you know, Australia sort of thing. Um, and, and I, you know, for people who think Australia doesn't have a class system, they're just crazy. I can tell you it does. And it's a very rigorous one, a very strict one, a very rigid class system. And it was, it was very difficult to kind of navigate all of that. But I was so, so far outside the norm that, it was probably quite liberating because I had no idea <laughs> what it was, you know, I just pff, didn't have a clue. So, um, 
but it was very difficult. I can't believe I got through uni, but I had to get through uni. And I had just this one thought, which was like, you know, I wanted to be this human rights lawyer. And, um, and I'd always, at that point, I was very interested in humanitarian law, the laws of armed conflict. And I was always very interested in gender issues. So that was what I was most focused on. So I was most focused on sort of how do women, um, how do women get justice from the crimes of war? So that was what most, you can imagine as a, I was a pretty painful uni student too, wasn't I, really? Um, so that's what my honours thesis was about. It was about women's experience of, of armed conflict and, and the lack of justice for crimes against women and girls. And um, and then I thought, well, how am I going to make a career out of this? So I tried a few things. I, I went to – I did an internship at DFAT where I worked on war crimes, um, met Sir Stephen, who was a big – role model for me like he's just he was just this gracious intensely intelligent humanist warm kind of person who who just embodied justice he was just a beautiful human being so I met him when I was working at at DFAT and he was that was a that was amazing because he went and became a judge um on the war crimes tribunal for the former Yugoslavia so I tried to arrange an internship to go and work at the War Crimes Tribunal as an intern so I could be there while he was being a judge. Um, and I worked on uh, the, in the sexual assault team, so as a final year lawyer. And I sold everything I had to be able to do that and I slept on my friend's floor. <laughs> it was just amazing. And then I, um, I also went, uh, from that internship at DFAT, I also got, a opportunity. I got a reference from the head of the legal division that helped me get a, a, a volunteering opportunity in Dadaab, which is a Somali refugee camp on the border of Kenya and Somali. So I did also did that in my final year of uni. Um, so I was sort of ready for that kind of war crimes refugee kind of world. Um, and I was, you know, I was absolutely determined. I did go into a corporate law firm to do articles because the Scottish part of me thought I can't have a law degree and not be admitted as a lawyer. I can't do that. That's not something I'm able to to contemplate. And I thought, you know, knowing my family, someone in the family might need a lawyer. So. <laughs> <laughs> is that you talking? You don't want that Scottish background? Is that what you're talking? <laughs> well, I can't really speak. I've got Irish background, so I can get where you're coming we're, from. We're, we're Scottish and Irish. Scottish on my mother's side, Irish on my father's side. No, yeah, so, always need a good lawyer. <laughs> always need a good lawyer. <laughs> so, yeah, from Glasgow and from um, Galway, uh, respectively. So I thought, okay, I might I might get my law degree, um, but I, I wasn't cut out for corporate law. And every every single time I got a performance review, it would be like, lacks commercial imperative. <laughs> I want that on my tombstone, hey. Uh, I do. I like a commercial imperative. I, just, I love that just leaves me absolutely cold and it's weird because I've never earned as much money in my whole life as I did the first year out of uni working in that law firm and it was such a wonderful feeling to you know I've been in debt and poor all my life you know and I was finally off welfare and I was earning this great amount of money and I was like I can't get used to this this is too this is too Faustian you know I've got to get out of here so anyway the day I was admitted I joined the National Council of Churches as their refugee advocate um, possibly part of me was thinking I need to pay back that nun for all the work she did for me. But also it was one of the few independent refugee advocacy positions in the country. There's, there's 
they've won an amnesty and the lovely guy who was in that job graham tupper is still in that job so i'm glad i didn't wait for him um and then the other one was at the national council of churches like i mean not government funded genuinely independent it was not independent in the fact that i worked for like 12 bishops though and they had to agree on things Wow. to do things so that was horrendous but anyway. yeah uh so i was the person who went to all the immigration detention centers and our big campaign was trying to get children out of immigration detention so that was cause number one for me as a professional um it paid so badly i also was tutoring at university of western sydney still um which was part of my ongoing everyone deserves a chance you know to to explore their talent too i wanted those kids to have you know the a great legal education and I was very uh, the the dean of the law school was someone who taught me at UQ and was the only one who kind of cared about that sort of stuff equity in legal education so I was I was happy to do that so I was in Parramatta once a week and every other week I was in Villawood <laughs> good good times yeah <laughs> um, and then trying to live in Sydney on you know NGO wages, super fun. And I, I don't, I'm not a Sydney person. I, um, the Kinabarabran folk think of it as the ant heap. <laughs> right, that's the ant heap. Why? It's too full on and people walk over people who are homeless and it's just not, it's not okay. Uh, so I was trying to get rid of, ready, you know, get my head around Sydney as well, which was difficult. Uh, I was doing some volunteer work for the Red Cross IHL committee, so I was still kind of really interested in that world. And, you know, a lot of the people in immigration detention, of course, were, were refugees um, and asylum seekers. And so I was very interested in that. That was So that was the late 90s, and that's when they'd brought in... Actually, it must have been 2000. That's when they'd brought in... Uh, Labor had brought in immigration detention, which was run by the Australian Federal Police, which people forget Labor brought that in, but it was publicly controlled... And then the Liberal Party made it kind of owned by private um, um, uh, security services, essentially. So when I was doing immigration detention monitoring, it was it was being run by kind of quite scary American private prison companies, private security companies, and there was a, there was a whole range of issues with most of the detention centres. Anyway, we were very very focused on getting kids out of detention. I learnt I learnt quite a few things about being cause driven and purpose driven. And that is, you can get things horribly wrong through no fault of your own, but you have to live with that um, and own that. So I was very stressed about people being uh, transferred from Villawood Detention Centre into Silver Water Prison. So they would be sent there for behavioural management issues or because there wasn't enough room in Villawood and they'd be transferred over to this prison. And that made me crazy because they'd committed no crime. That is mind-blowing. Just just send that again. So you're saying, just so we clarify this, they were in the immigration detention centres and if their behaviour or, or whatever was not deemed you know, appropriate, they were actually being moved to Silverwater Prison into a prison environment to be dealt with. So some were behavioural management cases and they, they previously they were putting them in these sort of solitary confinement kind of jobbies and they'd been um, in suicide attempts and various other things. So, and some of them were, they were transferring because they were criminal deportees. So these were cases of people who'd served their sentences and were going to be deported, but there was some delay in their deportation. But they were not prisoners. They'd served their time, but they were going to be deported. And then others were just people they couldn't house for whatever reason. So there was uh, 
um, perhaps there was a problem with the, you know, there was a group already in detention who didn't like that group or whatever it is. So transferring them all to Silverwater, I, I freaked out. I was like in, full of righteous indignation because the principle was correct, right? You should not put that anyone who is not a prisoner into Silverwater, not even into the section which is meant for people um, who were on bail. So I did this big campaign and I got one of the nicer bishops involved and um, and then we finally got access to one of the, the people who'd been detained there who was able to come out and have a chat. It was actually quite difficult to get access to people, which is one of the problems with sending people to Silverwater. You have to know them and be able to name them and they have to ask for you, which means you don't just get ordinary people checking you out, you know, from the churches or from welfare groups. So we go in and finally talk to someone and then the person (laughs) says, you absolute maniacs, it's so much better here than it was in Villawood and I don't want to go back because here I can work and earn money, you know, and I can, um, you know, I get better access to my family and the living quarters are better and everything is better here in Silverwater Jail. And I'm like, are you serious? (laughs) Like I've just spent all this time and energy I thought, I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I check with one of the people who'd been transferred there before I started the big campaign? It was because the principle was incorrect. Now, the principle was incorrect, but isn't that fascinating that the actual reality was different? You know, like that, that obviously right in front of everyone's faces was what you were dealing with in the immigration was there was no compa- the comparison wasn't being made and actually a prison such as Silverwater was it was deemed a better place isn't that fascinating it's a better place until until there was a like a incident in the prison population and then they locked it all down and then the refugees freaked out and went oh okay maybe maybe not um not that that wasn't happening in Villawood but you know it was a different scale in prison because they you know they locked down each section and it's quite it's quite scary uh but you know I don't think anyone belongs in any jail. So having a refugee in jail after the kind of trauma that they've been through was just an anathema to me. And yet, you know, you should always allow people to tell you their reality and to go off their lived experience. So anyway, they shut down the transfer, but we were able to, I think the the private prison company was so ashamed that all the refugees said Silverwater was better. <laughs> that they did instigate a few changes uh, in Villawood. So um, after a while, I I moved down to Canberra to take a position with the National, uh, with the Australian Council for International Development, which was another peak body and really wonderful. They're they're basically Oxfam, Save the Children, Care, all the the big NGOs and and a lot of smaller ones who deserve a bit more name recognition probably. (laughs) I think they have 120 members now. And I was the human rights officer and um, previously ACFID had always had a human rights officer had been just focused on Timor. So this was uh, coming at the end of the Timor-Leste. Um, uh, so, you know, they'd had the intervention. Untayet was there at the time. So it still did have a very strong focus on Timor and the, and the kind of reconstruction period after the war. Um, but it was a more generalised human rights and development kind of... Um, position so we're really looking at how can our agencies preserve the human rights of the people that they're dealing with in their projects so you know how can we make it a rights-based approach to aid work as opposed to a welfare-based 
they were charity based which meant that people had the right to complain and people had the right to co-design all that kind of thinking that seems so natural now really 30 years ago 20 years ago in the aid sector it was it was you know radically changing and uh and that idea about poverty and you know really i really resonated with the idea that all human rights are predicated on having that kind of basic personal security and uh, ability to feed yourself and have shelter and all those things that you know I never took for granted really growing up and and this is just such a key part of human thriving that kind of basic level of security so I really cared about overseas development not as a political tool or a tool of the national interest but really as a, as a rights-based approach and I was kind of lucky because there was that pe- that sort of little period of Australian politics where Mr Rudd was the foreign minister and very interested in that approach uh, and the aid budget was going up and up and up and, and there was this kind of, you know, feeling that then we'd sign the, the MDGs and there was a kind of an idea that, you know, aid aid could be delivered differently and thought about differently. It was a really exciting time. Uh, and then the Tampa happened, <laughs> Tampa um, incident uh, with the refugees and I went off to join UNHCR, so the the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So if you can think by then, I'd had the kind of the the general idea of helping refugees and asylum seekers who had been detained. Um, been very interested in the laws of war, and um, I'd also been very interested in kind of poverty and that correlation between poverty and insecurity. So working for UNHCR was was wonderful for me, and you know I had to have that volunteer opportunity previously in Kenya which had been which was six months living in a refugee camp it was pretty rough got malaria got bitten by a cheetah cub everything happened um but I loved it absolutely loved it and I I really wanted to to get back to working with the UN I think most idealistic young human rights lawyers want to work for the UN until they work for the UN (laughs) (laughs) and they go oh my god and I still love the UN. I'm still very devoted to it because it's the best thing we have. Uh, but it's a much more realistic uh, judgment now. <laughs> um, and why is that? It's just a really difficult... Uh, the UN's only as good as the members, right? It's only as good as the members make it. There's no more, no less. And it's still better than... You know, it's a it's a good stolt thing. You know, the sum is, is better than the, the, the sum of its parts. You know, the... the the UN as an ideal is really impressive, particularly UNHCR, particularly the Office of the High Commissioner for the Human Rights, which are the two, and UN Women, which are the three I've had the most to do with UNDP a little bit. But the political organs of the UN uh, and just the bureaucracy of it is so difficult to navigate. I can imagine. Really, really hard, yeah. I was on contracts, these short-term contracts. At one point, I think I was on three-week contracts that went for years and years and years. You know, it was just... You know, because I was considered local staff, because I was an Australian working in the Canberra office. So the Canberra office works for um, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific. And they had new rules, which is that, you know, uh, you should have a woman on the missions where you're inspecting detention centres and meeting asylum seekers. So that meant I went to all of them. So I reckon I'm one of the only Australians who's been to every, every detention centre because of both the work at the NCCA and the work at at um, ACFID and then the work at UNHCR. I've been to all of them. Christmas Island, Manus, Nauru, Baxter, 
uh, Woomera, Maribyrnong, Port Hedlands, all of them. They're all miserable in various ways. My... Well, I was going to ask you that question. Was there any kind of difference between any of them or was it just a real, like, consistent, you know, running of these? There was, or was there any one that was a little bit different or was it just standard? No, they were all different. Um, Perth, Perth IDC was the worst. Uh, because it was such, a, it was like a watch house under the airport. It was this miserable, miserable set of cells. Um, but the one, that, and you know, Nauru and Manus were miserable in so many ways because you just couldn't get access to anyone or anything, and you know, that was so. Yeah, it just it was just so wrong, you know. <laughs> Having yeah. people who were under Australian control in those those remote islands, and I felt sorry for everyone around them too. The ruins and the Manus Islanders who were caught up in it all. Um, but the one that really got to me was Baxter because Baxter, all the other ones were kind of repurposed facilities. So, you know, Woomera was an old army barracks. Villawood was a migrant reception centre. They were all kind of built for other purposes and turned into immigration detention centre. But Baxter was purpose-built and it was built so that a person would never be able to see the horizon. So you even though it's in the middle of the desert, you couldn't look anywhere out to the horizon, which made it this kind of incredibly smothery, scary, psychologically weird place. So it was all, all walls and like a maze, like a panopticon, like a proper Foucault panopticon in the middle of the desert. And, uh, and I thought that was particularly cruel because it was designed that way to make people give up hope and you know, again, I kept thinking even silver water is better than this, you know, it, and it's so hot and, you know, it's in the kind of the part of South Australia that gets those terrible heat waves and people are trying to build these little tiny gardens. It was just, it was just miserable. Baxter was definitely the worst. I still, I'm still not allowed to talk about like individual cases, but I can tell you, um, it, it was harrowing and Australia's going to look back at that period in a not too distant future with absolute disgust, you know, that we did that and that we allowed that to happen. It was really, it's really very, very bad, um, the kinds of things we put people through. People who were merely seeking protection. Some people who may have been immigrants who didn't fit the definition of a refugee doesn't make them criminals, you know, still just makes them migrants who don't fit a very strict definition of a refugee. It is very difficult to, to reach the heights of individualised persecution under the convention it's, it's no reason to be locked up and detained for years and years and years in the middle of the desert with no no hope and no and you know people just going slowly mad and then their their psychological torment or their suicide attempts being the thing that gets them to the australian mainland it's so messed up Isn't i had a guy it? who was i can talk about him because he was in a one of our cases there was a stateless man in Villawood who was there for so long, I think it was seven and a half years in the end, that he went psychosomatically blind um, and then he got out because he was blind. So we had sent him blind through not giving him an answer or not resolving his situation. He was finally allowed out on that basis. I look back at some of these things. It's just crazy stuff, you know, Kafka sort of stuff. I really, I really loved working for UNHCR, even though it was, you know, pretty traumatic. And uh, there was 
lots of things that we could achieve though on temporary protection visas and um, getting some of the, the women and children off Nauru and resettled to New Zealand. And of course I was working for New Zealand as well. New Zealand was one of our countries and that was always wonderful to go to Mangare and see the difference in treatment. Um, so they have a detention centre which has got an open door and people just come and go and go to the shops and a little bus a couple of times a day and they have like this beautiful little house that's all set up to help people understand what it's like to live in a New Zealand house with New Zealand stuff you know it's so beautiful it was a very different so I was in UNHCR when Helen Clark got all the kids from Afghanistan and reunited with them with whatever family member they could and that was really nice so it was it wasn't all grim and we're trying to help the Pacific Islands come up with uh, to join the convention and, and think about what they'd do if they got an influx of people, which they sometimes did, not very often, but sometimes. So it was it was a great time. Then I had I got pregnant and um, thought I can't keep going to detention centres. I was going to Nauru kind of once a month. It was it was pretty pretty intense. So um, so I went back to Akfid wonderful people at the Australian Council for International Development and, and again was working on the aid issues there and as I said it was a bit of a golden time the, the kind of the rug years for the aid budget and what it was trying to achieve in the sense of being a more sustainable genuine partnership uh, between countries so I was very proud of that so so you can see kind of a an evolution and then it all changed again because uh, my second child had Special, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry, I should say, worked in government for a few very intense years, <laughs> thinking, thinking like a maniac that it would be quieter to work at Parliament than it was for UNHCR, uh, which it was, but not wildly. So, <laughs> worked for the Parliamentary Library for a few years, uh, which I loved, and I, I do have a, a deep dedication to the idea of um, parliamentary debate being of better quality than it is and more evidence informed than it is but I did I did love work and, I, and that probably finally gave me the kind of political nous that I actually desperately needed I've never been a particularly political animal I don't really understand why any of them do what they do but I've been a very policy oriented animal uh, but I did need that kind of understanding of Parliament to really understand how Parliament, you know, political processes play out and stuff like that. So it was probably the, the piece of the puzzle that I really desperately needed. It's the same with the UN. You have to understand bureaucratic politics and institutional politics and Parliament. You have to understand politics for the capital P. So uh, that was the John Howard, end of the John Howard years and beginning of the Rudd years. Yeah, very interesting time. Uh, and then I, I sort of shifted, um, probably getting a few dates wrong here, but anyway, I sort of basically shifted into academia because my son uh, had special needs. He's uh, on the spectrum and he, he had a quite severe, well, he was nonverbal and having some real issues when he was very small. So I tried to take a job that was going to be a little bit easier uh, in terms of autonomy. So we could deal with all these thousands of appointments and I'd, I'd done a lot of work on disability rights in ACFID. Um, the Australian Aid Program at that time was a leader in disability and development, disability inclusive development. And I was so grateful that I kind of had that exposure and experience. And, you know, before I had a, a child with a disability of my own, it was it was quite a blessing. And he's, he's a total blessing. I, the spect people on the spectrum are 
pretty much my favourite people now that I, I get it. And uh, I don't really see it as a disability anymore. That neurodiversity is, is a gift, but it is sometimes a really hard gift because the world needs to change and understand it a bit more. So it's like, like most things with the disability. It's not the disability itself. It's the world not adapting to yeah. let that type of human thriving work, you know. So I went into academia and... Um, Against all the odds, I've stayed there ever since. So um, <laughs> partly because, as you, as you know, I believe in education very much and, and that talent, you know, education is really, really important for a whole lot of people, not just in and of itself, but as a route out of, you know, all sorts of difficulties. So I finished my PhD, which was also on gender and war crimes, this time in East Timor. So you could see how that all came together. While I was working in Timor, helping the NGOs there, I thought, well... No one's, no one's got the time, space or resources to tell this story and it deserves to be told about how women were feeling through the, through the post-conflict period and, and the type of justice that they were trying to seek and what, what was the outcome. So, you know, I'd worked at the Yugoslav Tribunal on some of those issues. I expected what happened in Timor to be slightly better, but it wasn't for all kinds of reasons. It was... Very depressing, actually, what happened to Team Rees in terms of justice. You know, I think two two low Indonesian militia went to jail and they were immediately released. It was just really depressing, the whole... And all those guys, all the big fish, like, they're still living large in Indonesia and one ran for president. And it's really very depressing in terms of amnesty and, and, and no accountability for... for very serious war crimes and Timor is such a small country I think people don't understand that yes it's a small country so the numbers aren't huge but the numbers represent such a substantial part of the population like we're talking about a third of the whole population it's a, it's like it's like the first nations massacres in Australia you know people don't understand the scale comparable to population that's so you can argue about genocide in, in those cases and people have in relation to to Timor and in relation to First Nations. Actually, the first parliamentary submission I ever wrote for the churches was on the anti-genocide bill that was put forward by Andrew Bartlett. Is that Andrew Bartlett? Or the Democrat that was in WA. I can't remember his name now, but I was (laughs) so convinced the Australian Parliament was going to listen to all the arguments. Yes, it's absolutely right. You are legally correct. What happened in Australia was a genocide. We will do all of these new things. I keep thinking about that as the voice campaign keeps going on, you know. The lack of understanding people have about the history. And, you know, there's a feeling of very personal guilt. The farm I grew up on for a few years when I was living with my grandparents in Coonabarabin had Aboriginal cave paintings on it. And my grandpa would graciously allow... First Nations people to go to the caves whenever they wanted, and I remember thinking to myself, like, surely it's their caves. <laughs> you know, like, shouldn't they be giving permission to us for having a farm near it? Like, even then, like, it just seems so weird. I spent my whole childhood kind of having thoughts like that. You know, why do the women and kids have to leave home if the dad's violent? That that's not fair, and. You know, why do Indigenous people have to get permission to see their lands, which they've clearly had for thousands of years, 
like all that stuff is just there's so much upside down built into our experience of of life in australia you know in many countries there's this kind of baked in injustice which flips everything but you say so simply there you just said that so simply like it makes every bit of common sense like forget everything else just how you just said it there why do women have to leave a a, a home where there's an abusive male well you know father whatever it is why do um you know first nations people have to ask permission to be to go visit what is their land you know i think there's something about being a child that had not so much formal education you kind of see things a little bit more clearly maybe because you don't get educated out of it um you know why if it's the world world's oldest culture then they know things you know <laughs> just it was just you'd sit with you you Kuna is about half first nations half a motley crew of all sorts of other people and my probably a lot of them were like my grandpa had got a plot of land after the war uh which is why we're in Kuna and he's from Karamulka originally another quite isolated place <laughs> hot but you know that idea that they just chopped up bits of Aboriginal land and handed them out to returning soldiers, but not Aboriginal soldiers, of which we had a few. <sighs> yeah, anyway, um, when, I was, when I was 11, David Bowie came to Coonabarabran to film Let's Dance, the music video. That's where it was filmed. Yeah, it's, it's got the beautiful Warren Bungles behind it. Yeah. Yeah, it's right. A, it's, a very iconic, it's a very iconic video amazing. for many reasons, that one. But, I think. you know, when you're 11... Again, if you think about things that occur to you as a young person, it's like out of everywhere in the world, David Bowie chose my town to talk about racism. Hmm. <laughs> Are we the most racist place in the whole world? Shit. You know, <laughs> it's like because every day he was in Kuna, this wild exotic creature, you know, he was just telling everyone all the time how racist this place was that he was in and you were kind of going what (laughs) so so did the actual town itself like did people in the town just go really in some weird way push that to the back and go yeah like we've got david bowie doing a video here when really he was pushing a message in that people weren't seeing or we're seeing but weren't even willing to talk well, the, about. the pub itself that he filmed some of the pub scenes is that's not in Kuna that's a couple of hours out but none of those people right. had a clue who he was or what he was up to so all those people in the pub they're just being themselves that's none of that is staged right and it was a bit like that in Kuna too people half of people had no idea who he was you know we only get country music in Kuna we didn't even get you know trip like we there was no it was no triple J or anything back then. It was just Tamworth country music <laughs> and like wool sales, you know, agricultural ads, um, John Laws, that sort of stuff on the commercial one commercial radio channel. And we only got the ABC and one channel. I think it was Win or something. So it's not as if there was a, a wild, you know, oh my God, it's David Bowie. Like, really, no one had it flipping clue like it would be much more exciting if slim dusty came to town like no one was interested in <laughs> and so most of the kids were like never heard of him we, you know we had a, there was some kids who you know people that moved to sydney who were like david bowie it's really cool like, okay what is, what um 
but yeah, he, he was doing interviews every day about about the racism in Australia, and um, and he had these Sydney Aboriginal dancers with him, who are in the video, uh, who I suspect weren't being treated very well, probably even by local Indigenous folk. I think it was it was you know it was quite a an incursion, I suppose, that people weren't expecting. And I, you know, I don't remember. I was eleven. I don't remember heaps of details, but I just remember all the kids. Kind of, we would gather outside his hotel as he would go, and we'd be like, "Whoa!" And he'd be like, "You, you know, <laughs> you kids are, you are beyond the pale. I'm cool," which of course we were. But he wasn't very kind. Like he wasn't a nice kind. Of, he wasn't taking the opportunity to to do anything nice for the local kids. We have this huge observatory in Coonabarra and Signing Springs and none of those scientists ever ever moved a muscle to try to help the kids in the town become astronomers. You know, it's just so sad, you know. Like I look back and I think billions of dollars worth of scientific equipment on that mountain and amazing scientists doing amazing things, discovering, you know, dark matter and black holes and all, you know, everything you can think of. And then all these kids in this town that doesn't have street lights so that they can do their work so we don't have any lights in Kuna we have these sort of very faint orange lights so you can't do much at night because it's good keep it dark so it doesn't affect the telescopes you know and what did they do for us like absolutely nothing it was it's just really sad when I look back I think there was no sense of that anyone in that town would have anything to offer that community you know anyway uh, where am I up to? I'm up to, so I got sidetracked on Dave Bowie. I keep thinking to it because I'm wondering, like, did that spark some, is that what sparked the social justice kind of thing? Did I look at my Aboriginal friends, you know, differently? I don't think I did because everyone in Kuna was dirt poor, right? Like, there wasn't like a, wasn't like there was lots of rich white kids and poor black kids. It wasn't like that. Everyone was dirt poor and we were all pretty intermarried and, you know, I, I don't know. But then I look back and I think I was probably being quite naive. I'm sure a lot of my my Indigenous friends were having more interactions with the police than I was and, you know, more visits to their house and even though that there was probably very similar living conditions and, you know, all sorts of stuff that I, I wasn't probably clocking at the time and a lot of generational trauma that I could see playing out in kind of various families. And certainly, you know... None of us were ever given any kind of sense that we could amount to anything, but I'm sure the Indigenous kids were getting stuff like you can be a footballer or an artist or a national park ranger, you know, and that's it. Whereas the white kids were probably being told you can work in a shop or a bank or maybe a teacher or a nurse, you know, which is what the girls were always told. Yeah, so worked in Parliament, worked in some government departments, Attorney Generals for a very short time. Uh, but I did. I re- did really enjoy working for public servants, and you know, when you're inside the public service, you can build things. You know, you can work on things that really matter, and that was imp- that was important and impressive. But I'm much, I'm much. It's very hierarchical the public service, and it's hard to to be an autonomous person who asks lots of hard critical questions regular junctures though probably wasn't the best fit for me but I have a huge amount of respect for people who are in the public service and remain in the public service that includes politicians you know I met a lot of politicians who really did care Um, Peter Andron was my favorite he was this beautiful independent 
Polly from out my way, not quite Coonabarabra, but close. And he he was so principled when it came to refugees and asylum seekers. And he, he explained it to people in a way that meant that they supported him and he made it personal, made it human and introduced human beings to the issues. And I learned a lot from him about how to help people understand difficult things and, and kind of put human faces on them. I mean, the stuff with refugee policy has always been the same. You can't can't name people because that might endanger them, which means you can't humanise them for an Australian audience. Like, you look at that gorgeous Biloela family, how, how would it be if you couldn't know their names and know what the girls looked like? And, like, you can get so much sympathy for a family when you can talk about them and their story. Very true. Well, they're not a number. They're not. They're not a statistic. They're not anything else. They're. They're. They're real. They're in front of you. You know. And and that's that. That's and even everything. then, look what we put them through. Yeah. You know. And if they hadn't chosen to live in a, a small town that desperately needed people, I don't know whether how it would have worked if they'd stayed in Western Sydney or somewhere. I don't know how it would have worked for them. So as I say, you know, I've worked on refugee issues now for nearly thirty years, and it's got nowhere. That must be really hard for you, uh, um, Susan, because I'm sure it's challenging, but like you, you've obviously, you continue to fight the fight and you continue to, you know, through your work and your research and your papers and everything else, you just continue to, to really try and make inroads into it. Like, how hard is it? Like, you must, is there really long times where you just like, no matter what I do, this is not making a difference? Or can you, or do you hang on to the, to the small wins even greater because you can, you just have that optimism that it can open up something yeah. bigger? Well, my, the book that's coming out is so depressing. It's about... Don't say that as a, as a plug. Come on, Susan. We've got to get this it's one coming better. For Christmas. The book is perfect coming out. For, so for, for a relative you really don't like. Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> it's about women's rights in Myanmar and Afghanistan and I started it seven years ago now so it's like from that period where there was a lot of hope um from the period now so you know it starts with Aisling Suchi gaining power in the first election in Myanmar the Taliban being ousted in Afghanistan and uh, you know Unmet coming in and you know so it's these transitional periods where we hoped that women's rights might flourish and it's all gone so so very badly the custard, worse than I ever dreamed in both places, you know, so Myanmar's now the army is trying to kill all its own young people and in Afghanistan women can't even leave the house pretty much, you know, can't even go to a beauty salon is the latest or a national park or, you know, any public space essentially um, and that evacuation, that was so awful to watch. But but you also have this generation of women who know differently, right? And girls who know differently, who know yeah. a different life. So I keep so to your point, I keep thinking to myself, you know, there is a generation of Afghan women who are educated, and that can't be you can't uneducate someone. That's why education is so impre- so precious. Once you've got it, it can't be taken That's away brilliant. from you unless unless they kill you. It's there. Your mind is permanently opened and changed and there's a whole generation of Burmese girls and young women and Afghan girls and young women for whom that is the case like will it win the day I don't know but I still feel like there was some time and space that was bought for those that generation 
and you know, so a lot of them have have left and will have lives as ex exiles and expats, which is not ideal. But they will still be the future of those countries. This is also why refugees are so important. They're not just not just individuals, but you know, nations that might one day have a different path. You need those people to be able to go home. I saw that in Timor. You needed all those people to be able to go back and build the country again. Um, so, so I guess what's mainly depressing is all the intervention the West thinks it's making. You know, they're so they're so fringe and marginal, and they're so fragile. And we get some things horribly wrong. You know, in Myanmar, everyone was just racing to get foreign investment in there, and trying to make Aung San Suu out to be some saint when she wasn't and totally misunderstanding the Rohingya situation and you know Afghanistan's the same thing or the corruption that was introduced by the US influx of money and the, the way it, it you know all sorts of things that went wrong there um, but it did buy some time and space for a very important generation to see a different type of life and have a phone and to have access to outside communications that yeah, yeah, weren't there before? I know we joke and you're saying that's very miserable and all that, but but it's actually really important, isn't it? Like you and what you do and what you bring with your your work and your writings, and your research, your papers, and everything that you've done on the global stage is is super important, you know. Um, and I know I know hopefully you take stock of that as well because I know it probably is a lot of challenging times for you too as well, where where you see this horrendous stuff in front of you and you and you just kind of go and you feel like you, you need to give up on it, but it's really important that you do share that, you know what I mean? Um, for people that, like my listeners and everyone else around the world that, that reads any of your stuff, your papers and research, because it's, it's, uh, I've read some and it's really challenging stuff, but really like super educational. And also, sometimes, sometimes you just have to accept that you're not going to see what you wanted to see. I'm not going to see Indigenous self-determination to the extent that I want it maybe in my lifetime. But I see amazing First Nations champions and such diversity of leadership and, you know, a lot of really amazing stuff. But sometimes you just have to accept that you have to be on the right side of history so that the next set of people coming through, future generations, can make a change that you couldn't, right? Like, I, if you read a lot of the slavery, the anti-slavery movement stuff, the, the American Civil Rights Movement, you know, a lot of, a lot of movements... You have to think generationally and you have to think maybe my job is just to say there was at this time deep resistance to what was happening and put that on the record and make sure people understood that, you know, there were white Australians who didn't think that was okay and there were people who didn't think refugees deserved that particular type of treatment and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's important to kind of hold the line because you don't, you want to make it easier for the, the activists of the next generation to say, you know, I'm not I'm not starting from scratch. It's, you know, 50 years of, of work that other people have done and, and I'm not crazy. I'm not the crazy one. <laughs> you know, these other people feel yeah, the same yeah. way. It can be very lonely when you're trying to it's – not, it's not usually about people. It's about structures. So you, you're trying to unravel structures that are very strong, systems that are very strong. Um. So, you know, that's that's why you have to kind of keep showing people there are paths to resistance and paths to change. But it is, especially on the gender stuff, and, and it's been so hard. 
And some of the stuff I'm most known for is the stuff that's the weirdest, the G20 work, human rights and sport work, you know, so I did the human rights assessment for the FIFA Women's World Cup, which was an amazing human rights moment, you know, in Australia. Well, that would have been, and then look at the look at the actual spectacle that it was. It's a but game then, changer. Look at you know all that human rights risk assessment was not enough to stop someone being sexually harassed on the podium as no. she won. Isn't it? Isn't it such a shame? Isn't it such a shame? I was saying to my wife today, like this is ridiculous. Like this is the greatest sport in World Cup, Women's World Cup, and then it's like even Spain winning it, like an incredible achievement, and it's completely overshadowed by this, like this moment. You know, and it's not completely overshadowed, but it, it has taken a lot of unnecessary kind of focus away from what was incredible, yeah, um, yeah. game-changing, I think, sporting moment for the for forever. You know, but, um, but that is more. But that's the reality. That is actually more the reality of football governance. You know, all those male coaches and that the heads of the football associations and the inadequate prize money and the inadequate training, you know, and that is actually also the reality. So what you saw, the magic those girls and women were doing on the football field was was despite all of that, right? Yeah. So imagine what they could achieve if they had a great enabling environment. Like, But, you know, I, I, so I, I love that people resonated with it so much, but it doesn't let FIFA off the hook for what is essentially an unjust system, you know. No, absolutely, absolutely, and I imagine who did the human uh, rights um, independent review for Qatar, and um, we won't go into that one. Um, but like, yeah, I can see you laughing. You probably we could get you going on an hour or two on that one. But I am conscious of your time. You have been phenomenal. I could listen to you for so long because I know you've done so much amazing work, and you continue to do it, uh, Susan. So I just want to thank you so much for being a guest today, um, and hopefully we can stay connected and we can, you know. I'd love to hear more and have more conversations because um, I'm, yeah, I think we're deeply in, indebted to the work that you do um, and what you bring to a spotlight um, and what you continue to fight every fight uh, for as well. So I hope you take yeah. stock of that as well. And, uh, you know, sorry for taking you so much down Coonabarabra memory lane and Liz Moore, but it is important to who I am. I think um, you can be an outsider or come from a difficult place and be a really great advocate. In fact, I think most people are from that place who are good advocates because you can you can you can say but I exist you know so therefore you know you're kind of a walking proof point you know uh, and I haven't even started on climate justice but that's where I'm going now with my new work it's sort of this sort of feminist climate justice kind of work um, and trying to take a human rights approach to extreme heat because that's where it's all going to be now everybody's talent has got to be focused in that direction um, I look forward to, to hearing about what you do in that space and, and, and all the work that you do, I think, with the, the climate justice um, observatory that, you, that you're involved in and, and so forth as well. But um, before you go, Susan, part yes. of the podcast is, as you know, you were nominated by someone, um, which was Taylor, uh, Taylor D. Hawkins. And um, as part of that, I need to ask you if you have someone in mind who you could nominate and introduce um, me to and um, have as, as um, the next guest yeah, on What's right. Your Cause. Uh, I'm, I've been really lucky to be... I don't know what you call reverse mentored by lots of brilliant young women. Um, you've had a couple on the show, Ash and Taylor. Uh, uh, one of those um, who I've known since she was a young uni student is Holly Ransom, who's very, very passionate. Well, she's a passionate human being, but she's very passionate about leadership and what it, what it means to be a leader and kind of developing your leadership. And I think she'd be great for this podcast and will help you on your Barack Obama quest. 
Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, I've read her book. Um, it'd be incredible to be introduced to her. So um, I always want to thank you again for being a guest and I wish you nothing but the best in your work going forward and uh, look forward to staying connected. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mick. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and share. If you want to follow me on Instagram or on Twitter, you will see the handles in the show notes. This podcast was produced and edited by me.